you would, please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians. And let's open chapter 1, and we'll read the first couple of verses. To the praise of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. So, in life and in sport, or in sport and in life, if you forget the fundamentals, sooner or later it will catch up with you. And really, um, in sport and in life, the key thing is to master the basics, right? And so, I was reading an article recently about Eli and Peyton Manning when they were playing together at the same time in the early 2012-2013, and how they had this habit of going back to their college coach, coach at Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, Coach Cut, and um, they'd go back each summer, and Coach Cut would, dis, dis, uh, would kind of take their game apart. And in particular, when Peyton Manning um, ended his career at the Indianapolis Colts after a serious neck injury, um, everyone thought he was finished in football. He went back once he, the acute phase of the injury was over, and Coach Cut looked at him and realized his throwing action with the ball uh, was actually putting a lot of stress on his shoulder and neck, and that uh, if he didn't change the way he threw the ball, it would be the end of his game. And the same with Peyton later as well. He had to go back to Coach Cut and have his, his, his throwing action dismantled as bad habits had crept in. And that takes a lot of work. I remember whenever I was a golfer back in my teenage years, um, and uh, I had a, a natural fade in my, in my swing, which would become a slice under pressure, and I went to a golf professional. And at that time, my, I was, the best I was shooting was like high 70s, which, is, which wasn't bad. I was pretty pleased, but I wasn't quite keeping up with my friends on the golf team. And so I uh, went to the professional and he said, listen, until you deal with this fault in your swing, you're never going to get any better. High 70s, low 80s is going to be the best you shoot. You've got to take your, we've got to take your swing apart and fix it. And it was a nightmare. I spent a couple of years trying to do it. And um, he said, if you don't do this, your game will break down or your body will break down, one or the other, but you've got to fix your swing. And so it was a nightmare. But it's important because you've got to master the fundamentals. If you, if, you, if you get those wrong, everything else will start to unravel in whatever you're doing in sport or in life, I think. That is basically true. And, and that essentially is the, the, the big point in Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's about mastering the basics of the Christian life which essentially means less of me and more of Christ. 
That's the essential driving message in the book of um, Philippians. It's a battle of the mind. Ten times in these four chapters, Paul will use the word phroneo, which means to think. And let the mind of Christ be yours, he says. And again and again, this verb pops up. It's a battle of the mind. Less of me and more of Christ. Now, before we dive into that, a um, quick few words of background. Paul planted the church of Philippians about 10 years before he writes this book. He, he planted it around AD 51, right? In the middle of his second missionary journey, in the first sermon he went through all that, and there wasn't, just wasn't enough time, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spoil with your patience this morning. But you can read that from Acts 15, 36 through chapter 18, verse 22, Paul's second missionary journey. It begins, you remember, with the conflict with Barnabas over John Mark's suitability. Barnabas said yes. Paul said hard no, and they split their separate ways. Barnabas goes through into Cyprus with John Mark, and Paul goes into uh, southern Galatia and Syria and Cilicia, strengthens the churches there, heads over through Asia, and the Holy Spirit stops them ministering in Asia. We don't know how or what that meant, but they were forbidden to speak there. They were they're kind of pressurized and forced west under the coercion of the Spirit. They get to Troas. At Troas, they have that vision from the Macedonian man at nighttime. They cross over by boat to Macedonia, which Paul wouldn't have realized, but is a momentous moment in human history because it's the first time the gospel comes into what we call Europe. It didn't exist back then, but it was a huge moment as the gospel penetrates into Europe. Paul goes from Nicopolis, or Neapolis, sorry, down to Philippi, down to Thessalonica. He's driven from there to Berea, where the Jews were more noble and studied the Scriptures and to see if what Paul was saying was true. From Berea, Paul goes down to Athens and, and debates the, um, the philosophers in Mars Hill. From Athens, he goes to Corinth, spends 18 months in Corinth preaching and teaching, and then goes back to Jerusalem. That's his second missionary journey. At the start of that journey, though, he goes to Philippi. Philip I uh, was a Roman garrison town. There was a large deportment of Roman soldiers stationed there. It was a Roman kind of outpost colony um, in, in the empire. Uh, and Paul uses that language in Philippians 4, let the peace of God literally garrison about your hearts in Christ Jesus. You're being garrisoned by the peace of God, like a Roman soldier is all around you, right? Um, so Paul's picking those images up. It's a garrison town. When Paul was there, you remember, he went down by the riverside, the great spiritual, and met Lydia. God opens Lydia's heart. She's converted. She's a wealthy Jewess, uh, seller of purple. Um, Paul stays with her during his time there. Then you remember the marketplace, they bump into the girl in Thessalonica with the demon spirit. She was a slave girl. Her owners traded her off as a fortune teller, and she follows Paul around for several days, crying out, these men are proclaiming the gospel of the Almighty God. And after two or three days, Paul could take no more. And, um, and Paul could take no more, and he exercises her. Paul's dragged before the, the magistrates because he's destroying the business of these fortune tellers, or they think he is. And he's beaten there with rods many times, ends up in the, in the prison black and blue. I mean, think about it, being beaten with rods 
many times, severely beaten, the, the, Acts 16 says, um, shins, his, his elbows, his forearms, his backs of his hands, his head, spine, ribs broken, bruised. I mean, this is bad. You're sitting in stocks, your feet probably 12 inches off the ground. It's a stress position. Your sit bones are being driven into a cold stone, urine-soaked floor. Uh, your arms probably manacled above your heads. And Paul does what anyone would do in that situation. He sings the doxology, which got the attention of the, of the fellow prisoners. They're all watching this and um, it also got God's attention, and God sends this huge earthquake down that shakes the prison to its core. The doors fall open. <clears throat> the, the, the jailer who's in his bed asleep wakes up and sees the doors open, the cracks in the walls, and is, assumes that everyone's escaped. And so, I don't know what the Romans would do to him if he let the prisoners go by mistake, but falling on your own sword was the best option for this guy. He's about to kill himself, and Paul says, stop, we're here, don't worry, stop panicking. And the prisoner, the jailer says, those famous words, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. And just like Lydia and, um, uh, Lydia and this jailer, their household are baptized. Now, it's interesting, if you look at, the, if you look at Acts 16 and 2, just look at that. Um, the jailer takes them. So, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 31, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he said that before they heard the gospel. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Um, that's interesting. The focus is on this man's faith and the household baptism. Now, I know you could explain that a thousand different ways, but in light of the whole Scriptures and the basic household element of every covenant from Adam, Noah, Abraham, Passover night, all the way through to Acts 2, the promises for you and your children, certainly household baptisms are to be expected. Just leave that there. Anyway, um, so um, the next day, of course, the authorities come. They try to let Paul go quietly, but the problem was um, that it's wrong, it's illegal to beat a Roman. You can beat a barbarian, you can beat an Irishman, you can beat an American, but you can't beat a Roman without due process. And Paul either didn't have time or didn't tell them he was a Roman citizen for good reason. So the next morning when the police come to let him go, Paul says, uh-uh, not so fast. We're not doing any out the back door quietly goodbye this morning. I'm a Roman citizen. And the color drains from these guys' faces. You go get your magistrate lackey friends, get them down here, and I want them to apologize to me. So they go and tell the magistrates, they have a blood draining from the face moment as well, and they come down and they apologize. <laughs> I'm really sorry. And Paul says, it's okay, we'll say no more about it. Now, Paul wasn't being a jerk there. The genius move, he's just planted a church. What better way to ensure that church is safe from tyrannical governmental intervention than to have kind of one over the government in a sense in that town. And so there's no way that government's going to um, assault and persecute that church. Or Paul's going to come back and say, guys, remember me? 
Let's go and speak to Caesar together and see what he has to say about your treatment of me earlier on last year. And so the church is, is protected by Paul's courage, perhaps deliberately taking a beating, rather than say, I'm a Roman citizen, stop it. He takes the beating and then puts himself, as it puts the, the magistrates in his debt as they move forward. That took a lot of self-control for Paul, as I suspect he did that deliberately. So, fast forward 10 years from that, Paul's gone through his third missionary journey. At the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul in prison in Rome under house arrest, manacled between two Praetorian guard soldiers waiting to speak to Caesar. And during that time, he writes his four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And he's in prison there in Rome, and Ephroditus… Um, who's the pastor of the church in Philippi, comes to meet Paul, and he brings Paul a substantial financial gift from this church, which was significant because they were poor people. They were not wealthy at all, apart from Lydia. But they bring a substantial financial gift to Paul. And uh, Paul writes this letter to thank them. Now, it seems that Epaphroditus, either on his way to Paul or while he was in Rome, became deathly ill. He almost dies. And so, he stays a good deal longer than the church were expecting. And so, when he didn't return, they sent him off to Paul, you know, with, I don't know, $20,000, and who knows. And he doesn't come back. And they like, what's he done? Is he kind of absconded? He couldn't email them or text them or something, you know, because it was back in those days. And so, um, Paul writes this letter in part to tell them Epaphroditus is a good man. You can trust him. He almost died from sickness and was even more sad when he discovered and he was worried about you, his people, back in Philippi. So, as Epaphroditus is recuperating in Rome, um, he's talking to Paul about his concerns regarding the church. And it seems, if you, it's always a good thing to do, is to look at a letter that Paul writes and ask yourself the question, why is Paul saying this? And it seems to me, as I look at Philippians, that as Epaphroditus speaks to Paul, he's concerned that, that the virulent poison of selfishness is too alive and well back in Philippi. And you'll see a theme through the book of Philippians of self-centeredness and selfishness and selfish ambition. And it concerns Paul. And of course, that's the case in every church. We often think of the problems in the church as the federal government out there trying to get in, and that's bad enough, right? Um, or Antifa causing, you know, trouble, whatever. But actually, the greatest threat the church faces is not on the outside trying to get in. It's on the inside of our hearts that's trying to get out, and that is our, our never-failing propensity of having less of Christ and more of us inside us. And that'll, that'll tear at the fabric of a marriage. It'll tear at the fabric of a husband and wife and, and parent and child, and it'll tear at the fabric of a church ministry. And Paul writes Philippians in large part to deal with the problem of self-centeredness. And just, just walk through with me here, and just I'll show you where it pops up. Paul says, you'll actually find it sometimes alive and well in the hearts of too many pastors. Look at verse 15, chapter 1. Some, Paul says, indeed, 
preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, you can imagine Kyle and I are arrested, thrown in jail somewhere, and wandering interlopers come in here to preach. Reform guys, yes, but the reason they preach in this pulpit is to try and muscle in on our pastorate and get you to become their congregation. Selfishness, right? Selfish ambition. It's present in too many pastors' hearts. But as Paul moves into chapter 2, you realize it's not just in the pastors and the people too. You know, too often we allow just a little bit of selfishness in our hearts. Why else would Paul say, do nothing, verse 3, chapter 2, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves? Do nothing from selfish ambition. How many times, man, are you driving home at nighttime and you think, I've had a hard day? And maybe you've worked late at the office, 8 o'clock, you're coming home, and you start fantasizing in the car, getting home, and um, having the house to yourself. The kids will be in bed this time, maybe you think, and you can go in, you can sit in the lazy boy, lord of the TV, you can watch whatever channel you want, the game, you can watch football, baseball, whatever you want, and you, you, you think about getting like Dad Coke out of the fridge, opening it, sitting down, and just, oh, just perfect end of the day. I've worked hard. I deserve a little me time, right? But you get home, and your wife standing in the kitchen as mad as a wet hen with two or three of the little urchins at her feet. Johnny's failed his physics exam, and Lucy's done something bad as well, and you're standing, she's standing there wanting you to be dad and deal with these children. They're your children now. You're going, this is not my idea this evening. And, and, or maybe, ladies, when you, your husband's coming home, you're thinking to yourself, I've had these children all day. I just want to sit down at like wine o'clock. I want to sit down with a glass of Chardonnay and just, you know, I don't know, watch them. The, the house renovation channel thing that you ladies watch. You, just, you want to do that or something and just, husband, you bath the children, put them to bed, just to take them. Um, or children, you come home from school and you feel this mountain of homework and you think, yeah, I'm tired, I've got to get homework done, I want to play PlayStation. And your mum uh, asks you to change the trash can and you think, no, I mean, I've got, I've got uh, no, uh, better things to be doing, right? High how little we, we justify just a little bit of me time, selfishness, right? And Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing. Nothing. Remember Jesus. More about that in a second. And then Paul says um, in verse 14, chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why is he saying that? Because the congregation aren't doing that. He's hearing little bits of grumbling. Um, you know, Jemima hasn't been asked to take a Bible study, and she wants to. She hasn't been asked, and she's really upset about it. And she's grumbling about it, and, and uh, you know, um, problems in the church, grumbling spirits. Um, James didn't win the best, um, uh, not curry, what do you call the thing you make, the hot stuff down south, the, the um, chili, the best chili competition, didn't win it, he's grumbling, the judges weren't fair, they, they, gave it to, they gave it to Peter because he's the favorite, and people are grumbling, whining, and why do you grumble? You grumble because you're not getting what you want. 
Your desires aren't being fulfilled. Self-centeredness. Grumbling. In chapter 3, Paul's dealing with the danger of self-righteousness. Um, we are the true circumcision. Interestingly, he calls the, the church is the true circumcision. A circumcision and all it pictured is fulfilled in the church. We are the true circumcision. Abraham's covenants are, are alive and well. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So often selfishness makes us think we can put confidence in the flesh. Maybe you think, I'm the biggest, I'm one of the biggest tithers in the church. I, 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 I'm something here. I bring something here. Or maybe I'm one of the, I'm the guy with all the answers, um, one of the, you know, leaders, teachers, center of attention. Oh, you know, and, and, and so easy to, to think, well, what I'm doing here makes all the difference. And Paul says, no, you can't put any, any confidence in the flesh. None. Not any confidence. And it's not worthy. But Paul says, there was a time I used to think I was something. I was a somebody. I had all these credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Oh, but all that now, Paul says, is skabala, dung. He says, literally, it's a dirty word, but he says, dung, in comparison to Christ. But as we take our eyes off Christ and we, we stop seeing Him as everything, we start seeing ourselves as something. And we get our hurty feelings, and 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 and, and we, we start thinking about what we are doing and our contribution and so forth and so on. And Paul says, no, the very essence of our identity is we put no confidence in ourselves. What we are, what we have, what we do, it's all Christ. And then in chapter 4, the self-life, um, Paul says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These two women, could you, could you imagine being Yodia and Syntyche? Immortalized these two fighting women in the church. One commentator calls them odious and Syntyche, but they're fighting. Why are they fighting? Why can't they agree? Well, Yodia wants her way, and Syntyche wants her way, and they're both adamant. They're not going to budge, not going to agree. And Paul's got to address them. And then anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything. Where does anxiety come from? Anxiety comes from when an empty soul faces stress, and rather than looking up to the fullness of Christ, His perfect wisdom organizing my life, and His providence, His plan, His love, His kindness, His, his promised help and strength, rather than looking up to Christ, the anxious soul looks in at the emptiness within, the weakness within, the fallibility within. When you do that, what is there left to do but worry?
And then you have the problem of discontentment. Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am there to be content. Why is Paul saying that? Because obviously I think selfish ambition and selfishness, it's impossible to be content if you're selfish. Why? Because the selfish person never believes they've received everything that they really deserve, all the help they'd need, all the recognition they need, all the um, praise and adulation they need, all the success they need. Never happy. Discontent. And when you're discontent, it's always somebody else's fault. It's their fault. It's my circumstances fault. They never see the problem of discontent, but there's never on the outside. It's, an, it's on the inside. And so, as you see this here, there's this black thread of selfish ambition weaving its way through the whole letter. And so, Paul um, writes to address it. And his, his point, big point is, less of me, more of Christ. And if you think of that, as you work through these four chapters, chapter one is views Christ. Christ is my everything, and he, he is my everything in that He is my life, Paul says. And the key verse in chapter 1 that drives that through is verse 21. Um, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's in prison. He has no idea. Is he going to live or die? No idea. And he said, I, I, I'm not tormented by that, you know, sort of Democles hanging over my head, because life's about Christ to me, and death is about getting more of Christ to me. That that mindset lifts him above self-interest. Life's all about Christ. And as he writes this first chapter, he reminds the Philippians that this life of God has been is a gift from God. He says, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a life that is begun and ended by God. It cannot be stopped. And as he thanks God for this congregation, he thinks about the life of Christ, that what, what holds the glue that unites these people together. It's not their racial agreement. It's not their financial, social class. They all go to the same country club. It's not that they all have the same job. It's that they all know the same Savior. He said, I thank, in all my remembrance of you, I thank my God because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're partners. It's the Greek word fellowship, koinonia. But the idea, we think of fellowship as having a good, you know, chinwag around the table. No, it's much more than that. Fellowship is a business partnership, right? And if, you, and if you're in a business partnership, that business, when you're together with your partners, right, the business is the focus. You're moving the bar forward on the business. It's, it's the great uniting feature of your relationship with your partners. Well, likewise, in the church, Paul says, what unites us here is the gospel, that's what keeps us here. 
And so many people don't think like that. People think about the uh, church, the place you go to hear a kind of a decent message. It's not too long. You just have a good sing-song. You have a nice meal, meet some friends, play with your friends in the playground, children maybe. And, and that's where the church is to you. And you go away, and, it, and the rest of the week, you're back out into the real world, right? But in Paul's mind, no, the, the church is about life, the life of God in our souls, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, and the members, what would unite us together is not whether we male or female or Jew or Greek or barbarian, no, that we know Christ, we have felt the power of God and the salvation in our souls, and we are passionately concerned, like, a, like Warren Buffett looking at his investments moving forward. We are concerned to see the kingdom of God move forward in this place and from this place to our city. That's the uniting feature. Christ is our everything in that Christ is our life. Chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word worthy there means can be shaped by the gospel of Christ. I want you to live gospel-shaped lives. In other words, a self-forgetful life, a Christ-focused life. So, you go through the chapters. Chapter 1 is Christ our life. Chapter 2 is Christ our example. Have this mind, phroneo. Have this way of thinking among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to climb up the corporate ladder in heaven to attain equality with God the way Adam tried to do or the devil tried to do. Christ already was equal with God, and yet he made himself nothing. And the problem at Philippi was there were too many somebodies, and nobody wants to be a nobody, right? Everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be a servant, a slave, because if we act like a slave, people might see us as a slave. And if they see us as a slave, they might start treating you like a slave. Nobody wants that. Unless, there's, unless people go, oh, what a ser- you're so servant-hearted. Oh, it was wonderful. That's okay. We'll be a servant then. But nobody really wants to be regarded as a servant. Hey, boy, come here go and get me some more coffee. Nobody wants the pastor or anybody, you know, or even a member say to you, hey, come here, give me some coffee. Good, thank you. Not even a thank you, just go on. All right, thank you. <laughs> Nobody wants to be treated like that. That's really bad, right? Because we're, we all want to be somebody, not nobody. And Paul says, let me tell you about the only somebody there ever was who made himself nothing. Not by losing his glory, but by adding the form of a bondservant and became obedient unto death. And Paul's got to steady himself even to say it, even the death on the cross. It's amazing. Christ, our life, chapter 1. Christ, our example, chapter 2. And he'll, he brings in Timothy and Epaphroditus later on to show what that looks like. He says, I have a real problem, he says, I have nobody like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. 
And he brings in Epaphroditus too as a Christ-like example, a man, man who served others. And what that looks like is when you're fighting with your wife, men, you don't dominate her even though you know maybe you can. You let her have the last word. You listen to her because you want to know what you've got to say. You, aren't, you don't use her talk, talking time as a moment to think about what do you want to say next. No, you listen to her to really understand her pain and her concern. And even in those rare moments when she has lost her mind, you still think, basically, you're a reasonable person, and I want to understand what's going on, because you wouldn't be this angry unless there was something amiss somewhere. And so you listen, because you've got a servant heart. And we don't, because we've got too much of us and not enough of Jesus. And so Philippians, I think, has a lesson for us. Chapter 2 is um, Christ, our example. Chapter 3, Christ, our righteousness. As Paul thinks of what he used to be, how proud he was of his big Bible, and of his big Westminster Confession of Faith, and of his circumcision at the right time, and his membership in the tribe. He was a man. He was something. People thought he was something in the synagogue and something in the temple. He was a great prospect, great teacher. And Paul says, I, I, I see I'm nothing. All those things are nothing. I count them as loss, that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is found through faith in Jesus Christ. That nothing I, I could ever do could qualify me to stand in God's presence. Great story from the Queen. One of my friends on Twitter, he's a PPCA student in England doing a PhD in one of the British universities, and he was in taking a tour of the House of Westminster and the Palace, Palace of Westminster and the House of Parliament, and he was going through there, because he, he was a PhD student, he got a kind of a back, a down and dirty tour of one of the, the guides who was an old man who just knew everything there was to know about Westminster. And, oh, please be true, <laughs> please be true. And uh, he said to this guy, um, tell me the craziest thing. You've been here like, I don't know, 80 years. He's an old, old man. Tell me the craziest thing you ever heard or saw in Westminster. And he goes, oh, he said, I have the story. So when the parliaments opened every year, right, the queen arrived and all of her regalia, I mean, the, the fur and the crown and the train, whole nine yards. And they're on this corridor. This corridor is old stone, ancient corridor. And it's lined by the household cavalry. And there's the queen. These are the guys with the big silver breastplates and the helmets, right? Tassels and everything. They're standing there and attention with their swords. And as the queen walks down this stone passageway, they slap their, their swords off the wall and the sparks fly and the queen walks underneath them as she walks toward the House of Lords to open the Parliament every year. Well, in recent years, the queen had been frail and couldn't, there's a winding staircase up to this corridor that you walk along to get House of Lords, and she was too frail to make it up the stairs. And so, a few years ago, they put her in the elevator to bring her up to the corridor. Please be true. Please be true. And she gets in the elevator 
but they press the wrong button. Instead of going down, up, they go down to the maintenance floor. And when they arrive at the maintenance floor, the, 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 the doors open, and old Mavis, the cleaner lady, is there with her trolley. Well, she's just doing her business. She has her head down, and she just pushes the trolley into the, uh, into the elevator, pinning the Queen of England against the wall. And the security is looking, and Mavis is standing there, and Mavis lifts up her eyes and utters an expletive, not worthy for the presence of the, the Her Majesty, and the doors close behind her, and uh, the guards look at Her Majesty, and she just erupts in laughter, totally loses her head because she's laughing. So the lift is now going back up to the proper floor, and uh, the doors open, and uh, Mavis is there, and Her Majesty says, lead the way. And <laughs> Mavis turns around and pushes her trolley down through all of the, 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 the royal guards as they're smashing their swords off the wall and their sparks flying down, leading the Queen of England down to the, Lord of, the, the, the House of Lords. And apparently Mavis has been a guest um, since at Buckingham Palace um, for tea. Um, but uh, what a story. But Mavis could never have been there. She'd never have dared walk down that corridor were it not for Her Majesty saying. And Paul is saying in chapter 3 of Philippians that Jesus didn't just stoop to bring us onto the elevator of His resurrection power and bring us to heaven, that Jesus actually became Mavis, the cleaning lady. He became the lowest slave and was made sin, and died in our place. And every moment of His life on earth, He lived a perfect life, obeyed all of God's commandments all the time, personal, perpetual, perfect obedience in His thoughts, in His emotions, in His feelings, in His choices, in His conscience, perfect at every moment. Not a flicker of disobedience, not a moment of hesitation, perfect, perpetual obedience. My food and my drink is to do the will of Him who sent me. And Jesus says to Paul, all of this that is mine, limitless righteousness, the righteousness of the God-man is now yours. And Paul suddenly sees all of his attainments as a, steep, a steaming pile of scubala, dung. And he sees Christ as everything. And that's the essence. Christ, or, I thought, have you felt that? Have you seen yourself? We all at times think we are something. We're so prone to it. God has given us here growth, the like of which I've never seen in my ministry before. But God kept me for 20 years in the wilderness. And we churches out in the back and beyond that, that grew a little bit, shrank a little bit, grew a little bit, shrank a lot, to, to teach me that I can do my best works and preach my best sermons, and it doesn't amount to anything unless He blesses it. Because He knew if He had given me this in my first ministry, I'd have thought, I am something. And in reality, I am nothing. 
but a poor sinner trusting an almighty Savior. So Christ our righteousness. And then chapter 4, very quickly, is Christ our ability, our strength, our sufficiency in times of testing. The testing of personal conflict, odious and syntica. The, the testing of times of worry and stress, psychological, so relational conflict, psychological stress and conflict. I can't cope. I'm not able to cope. And Jesus says, look up to me. Look away from yourself. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will garrison your heart in Christ Jesus. And then contentment, the test of contentment. When life's ups and downs, Paul's sleeping in Lydia's palace, the ivory um, couch to sleep on, the granite sinks in the bathroom, the fresh running water, the servants to come and take away your refuse in the morning, and so forth and so on, all this wonderful, and the food, the prawn cocktails, all beautiful food, steaks, filet mignon, all there, Um, no pork, of course, but everything else, all the amenities there, beautiful place, and then next night, out walking down the road, black and blue, having been beaten up by by the, the magistrates, set free from prison, and sitting under a bush, on the highway to um, Thessalonica in a rainstorm with water drip, drip, drip on his head as he's sleeping. And Paul says, I have learned. It doesn't come naturally. I had to learn it. I have learned in whatever state I am. It's not found externally. I, I, don't, I don't find myself being content when all of my life circumstances are complete and perfect No, he says, I have learned in whatever state I am therein to be content. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. At any and every moment, when my marriage is going well, when my marriage is going badly, when my business is going well, when my business is going badly, when my health is going well, when my health is going badly, I have learned to be content because my contentment is not found in my circumstances. My contentment is found in my Savior and His strength at work in me. So, Christ our life, chapter 1, Christ our example, chapter 2, Christ our righteousness, chapter 3, and Christ our sufficiency, our, our ability to endure all things and be, have no joy and peace and contentment, chapter 4. And it's a battle, brothers and sisters, that we win up here. There's too much of ourselves in our lives because there's too much of ourselves in our hearts. And there's too much of ourselves in our hearts because we think too much of ourselves in our heads. It's a battle we must win and lose in our mind. Let this mind be yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ. Set your mind above. Where's your head at this morning? Is your head down here in this world? Or is your head up there with Christ? Are you thinking only about your business and your home and your life and your marriage and your children and, 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 and this world? And those, that's not unimportant. We're not Gnostics. Those are not unimportant things. But we only get the world question right and the self question right 
if we get the Christ-sent question right. And the lesson that we'll learn in the book of Philippians together is, it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's all about Him. And that's it. That's it. We've got to think that way. When to live a way you never lived before, you must first think a way you've never thought before. Let the mind of Christ, which is yours, be in you. And do nothing from selfish ambition, but empty yourself, pour yourself out, lay yourself down, give yourself up, serving others so that you might serve Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, help us. Grant that our love as a congregation, love for Christ, love for one another, love for our neighbor, love for our enemy, will increase and abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment that we may approve the things that are excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.